Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and this time round, we're returning to Warhammer. We're going to specifically talk about the Fifth Legion of the Space Marines. They are the White Scars, which means I get to talk about one of the groups that in the hobby I've always liked the idea of, but never actually collected. And also, it allows me to get into an area that I've spoken around multiple times, the Mongol Empire. So I'll definitely be able to do a nice deep dive into that later on, and also give you a little hint about something else that's going on in my life as well. So just a bit of fun there, just different stuff there. Definitely worth listening to this particular episode. Even if you don't like Warhammer, you'll know I occasionally do them, and where I talk passionately about Warhammer, I then quickly move on to other stuff too. And I think that even if you're just got a passing interest in this kind of stuff, the world that they built in either Warhammer 40,000 or the Age of Sigmar is really interesting. It's just a good story, a good setting for stories. So let's get into this one. So this is Warhammer 40,000, the one set in the far-flung future, and I mentioned Space Marines earlier. And I have done an episode on all of the Primarchs and how a lot of them are referenced to various bits of literature or ancient history, etc. So if you want to know more about the Primarchs, who are the leaders of each one of the Space Marine hordes, legions technically in the past, chapters in the more recent history of the future that never actually has happened yet, it gets confusing sometimes saying this stuff. Look, bottom line, you want to know more. There's an episode on Primarchs. Scroll down. You'll find it somewhere. This, however, I'm going to be talking about a bit of representation as well. Because, let's be honest about it for a moment. You've got Steve Jackson, Ian Livingston. These are great guys who created so much fantasy and roleplay and tabletop roleplay products in the 1980s, good for you guys, and then you got Rick Priestley writing the original rules for Warhammer 40,000 in 1987. These were all white guys. In the 1980s, diversity, particularly in Britain, wasn't a big name. However, what was interesting is pretty much from the beginning, the White Scars were definitely not a bunch of Caucasian guys running around the place. The idea was that these people, in essence, were the futuristic version of the Mongol Empire. And that is, seeing the whole thing about Warhammer 40,000, is it's very much martial, it is war, it is conquest, it is the time of Great Crusades. They fit in perfectly to that kind of vibe. So... 
it wasn't a hard push in that one, but it was nice that you got a group that clearly aren't based on something like medieval European history. Although the Mongols did get into Europe, a little bit more about that in a minute. Basically, if you look at all of the different chapters, legions, whatever you want to call them, each group of space marines has a certain vibe to them. There is a signature series of types of things that they're good at, that they might look like, etc. The classic one being the quite literal poster boys of Warhammer 40,000, the Ultramarines, very much based on the Roman Empire, with all the laurel leaves and stuff like that. In this case, the White Scars, slightly unusually, and this is why I didn't collect them, is they're white, and their logo is red, and a bit of yellow in there as well, and it was a time when transfers weren't really a thing, back in the late 1980s, so I had no idea how to paint the White Scars, and more importantly, white is a notoriously difficult colour to paint on little miniatures. Why? Well, you can get some white paint and slack it on, fine, but it looks very flat. The reality is, what you want to do is cover the whole thing in a very light grey, and then you might dry brush it with a pure white, or an almost pure white, and then do edge highlighting with an even more pure white. In other words, you're building it up. It needs a bit of shade. Something that's pure white looks wrong on a miniature that's less than three centimetres tall. It needs to have some shade and depth to the overall paint job. Now, again, back in the 1980s, that was way beyond my skills. Nowadays, there's a contrast paint where you can literally spray things white, and then you put on something called apothecary white. Contrast paints very thin paints that you kind of see through, and they collect in the recesses of a model, and so it is a light grey. So you spray it white, slap that on, almost job done at that point. It looks far more satisfying, but the white is quite an intimidating colour to paint. Not going to do it. And also because back in the 1980s, back in the days, when we put satellites in space, back to the 80s. because the space marines were new and they were super cool and I really liked them, I painted a lot of space marines. And so when I got back into it, I said to myself, do you really want to paint more of those guys? Not really. And even though there are some great models, etc., I buckled a little bit. Lehman Russ, the Primarch of the Dark Angels, came out a while ago, and it's such a glorious figure, I had to paint that. But I haven't painted a whole bunch of Dark Angels to go with him. It's almost like a work of art from my perspective. I'm not saying it's a great paint job, but it, it stands off on its own as almost like a centerpiece. That's my point there. No interest in painting lots of white everywhere. But the other thing, which I think is brilliant about the White Scars, is they are all just like with the, the Mongols. They're very mobile. They do hit-and-run operations all the time. They're experts at ambushing. A little bit more on that in a moment. So they have jet bikes. What's cooler than an armor-clad, genetically-enhanced super-warrior of the future? How about one of those sitting on a speeder bike? with guns mounted to the front of it. Awesome! No notes. And I get it. It's everything you would kind of want from a sci-fi setting. Well done, the white scars. 
who are obviously Mongol and they are Eastern Asian. Maybe you might say Han Chinese, but there are differences between Han Chinese and Central Asia. But anytime they are represented, they clearly look Eastern Asian. This has caused a few problems, a few interesting points. First of all, let's talk about the problems, shall we? The issue with Warhammer is a lot of it is getting people who are very, well, they tend to be quite young and they tend to be very morally involved. They're aware of what the current thoughts and viewpoints are in terms of social structure, etc. What this has led to is, I'm going to say, a slightly unnecessary argument. There are people, for example, in the Dungeons and Dragons community who are saying, oh, it's racist because you have to pick a race. They're all fantasy. But an elf would obviously have different skill sets to an orc because they're different creatures. So maybe the word race is wrong and species might be better. But why are we arguing about this? The problem with actual real racism is it affects real people. If you're getting bent all out of shape over dark elves slash drow, even the term dark elf might be a bit controversial in the world of D&D nowadays. Take that zeal apply it to something in the real world where real people really are suffering rather than standing up for the rights of the goblins out there who are underrepresented in Dungeons and Dragons or Warhammer. Get a life, I'm basically saying in a polite way. But when it comes to audiobooks, and yes, I've got an audiobook or two, the reality is there's an economics there. You need somebody to read out the book. And the problem is you only have one person. You need somebody with a good voice who can bring the book to life as they narrate it. Fine. Works. Problem comes is if you have different races in it. I felt really bad for Greg, the editor of this podcast, who did do both the editing and voice work of my first novel that was turned into an audiobook, Silent Crossroads, when, when I was writing it, the point was there are these different nationalities, these different accents, but behind the superficiality of it all, we're all human beings. You can write that, but expecting Greg to specifically do a Scouse accent, German accents, men, women, there's an Indian guy who pops up in it at certain points. I felt bad for Greg as in some pages he had to flip between three different accents and sometimes different sexes as well. It's like, sorry, Greg. But I'm not the only one who's come across this problem, because if you have a contract or at least you've been doing a good job with Games Workshop and Warhammer and you're doing a great job of reading out their books, you might be, let's say, a white guy. Problem is, you then got female characters. And so how do you voice those? Or in this case, you're sounding like me right now. And clearly I'm a white guy. And then you suddenly have to do the voice work of the White Scars, and clearly they sound more Mongolian. And I've seen literal tweets being put out there, or posts, or whatever. Elon Musk wants to call it at the moment, but you get the idea. The problem here is that it's like, oh my god, why can't they get people of the right ethnicity to do this? It's like, well, even with my book, Silent Crossroads, you'd probably need five different peoples to be doing the voice work and now it is unsustainably expensive because all these people would need to be paid and quite right too people should be paid for their work and particularly if it's an actual commercial enterprise games workshop is a company that is traded on the stock market so yeah they have money so 
It's just too expensive. You're turning it into a radio play and not an audio book. But it does mean that today we have people putting on accents in various different audiobooks. I'm talking about Warhammer here. I've mentioned mine. But believe me, this is not just a specifically Warhammer or Gem problem. It's a problem with every book when it starts describing lots of different people. Because if a woman wrote it and the only people in it were white women, it would actually be a bit boring. Where are the men, for starters? At some point, you're going to have somebody doing a different voice. I don't have a perfect solution for this. And I think you just have to go with it at this point. But it does mean also that you've got white men who've come up with the whole creation myth around the white scars, which again, some people have got bent out of shape. And there's a little part of me sitting there rolling my eyes going, oh, for heaven's sake. So you've got to have representation. But for starters, we're talking about 38,000 years in the future. Nobody knows exactly how these people sound like. And it's also all made up as well. That's probably the most important point. So just breathe a little bit. Again, take that fervor and zeal and take it somewhere else where you will be able to do genuine good in the world rather than just berating a poor audio worker who just is just trying to earn some money, basically. Cut them some slack. Right, moving on. So the White Scars are led by Jagadai Khan. Now, what's interesting is Jagadai Khan is a real person from history. I'll be going on to him in a bit, but he's actually spelt in the history books. It's pronounced the same way, but he's spelt very differently in a history book. It's literally got a J at the front of it in the White Scars book. And that's because the CH, like Genghis Khan, it could be pronounced Chinggis Khan. So it's got that soft sound at the beginning, which obviously isn't actually written in English in the first place. So you can get away with that. And again, 38,000 years in the future, who knows how things are being spelt. But each one of these Primarchs, leaders of these chapters, each one of the Primarchs has a special ability. Now, some of them turn out to be the most powerful psychers in the universe and some of them are immortal and some of them are this and some of them they have amazing absolutely amazing abilities and some of them are a bit rubbish by comparison now to be clear all of them are vastly stronger than a space marine who is already vastly stronger than a human they all have good healing abilities it's just some of them are wildly better than others and they're all incredibly intimidating as warriors. So the fact that Jagadai Khan is an extraordinary warrior shouldn't surprise you because that's almost in the job description, all right? However, his special ability is tactical genius in terms of ambushes, which I'm going to say immortality is a better one. If I'm doling out the gifts for the Primarchs, that one tends to be bottom of the list. But if he's meant to be as good at that as somebody else being an amazingly powerful psyker, which means magician in this world, then I'm going to say his ambushes never fail. He knows exactly how to ambush things. And also, he is impossible to be ambushed in and of himself as well. Again, if you listen to the Primark one, some of them dead, some of them alive, some of them in suspended animation. He has one of the weirdest ones. For about 10,000 years, he's been in a gladiatorial pit with the Dark Elves, the Drakari of Warhammer 40,000, fighting in a gladiatorial pit. He is also, and any time he is mentioned in things like the Horus Heresy books, incredibly loyal, incredibly committed to the Imperium. You're allowed a holiday. You're not allowed 10,000 years off, and clearly the Universal galaxy has got a lot more dangerous so come on Jagatai, put down the sword 
ambush your way through the Drakari gladiatorial center, grab a ship, get back to Terra, and start leading your brethren to fight against whatever threat is considered the worst. The Tyranids, Jem says with a question mark next to it. So, yeah, there we go. The White Scars themselves, they are still, 10,000 years later, have the jet bikes and are all about ambushing, hit-and-run tactics, and still have that white armor. So, there we go. I think I've done enough about the wonderful world of the Warhammery stuff. I've talked about some problems as well. But this, as I said leads us seamlessly into the Mongol stuff because Jagadai Khan was a real guy from history. In fact, he was the second son of Genghis Khan. Now, Genghis Khan, actual name Temujin, I'll tell you a bit about him, but not too much, because here's the bit where I get to tell you something exciting in my personal life. I've been very excited to share with you, and please do. It, it, it's had a nice amount of buzz around it, but it's all about keep going. And that is Hollywood and History, my book that is out at the moment. At the time of this being released, it's it's been out for a couple of months. It's still very, very new and very, very hot. But at the same time, I do like to have another project rolling in the background. So I'll give you the tiniest bit of a teaser that the Mongols are in this other book. But they're not the only group in this book. So I will go into a fair bit of depth about the Mongols, but you might be sitting there going... Oh, he's not weaving it into this, that, or the other. And that's because I will eventually be getting a podcast out about the new book, but it's still being written right now. And then it has to be edited, and then it has to go to the publishers, and dee dee da 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 dee. It's not going to be out for a year, November 2024. So that's it. It's the tiniest of teasers. Jem is now moving on. But I have always been fascinated by the Mongol Empire. What's interesting, in my opinion at least, is when you look through the centuries, occasionally you get moments where clearly one civilization, one culture, utterly dominates an entire century. So there's the so-called Long Century. This is from about 1780 to 1914. That's the Long Century, and that is very much seen as Britain's century because Britain's empire was at its peak. That period starts with technically the loss of the American colonies, but it didn't slow Britain down as there was the scramble for Africa, the final conquest and colonialization of India, so on, so forth. Britain's empire was the world's largest. But do you know what the second largest empire in the world's history was? And indeed, the largest continual land-based empire? The answer being the Mongol Empire. And so... Whereas we can say that the 1800s were Britain's century, the 1200s were the Mongol century. There isn't a lot of things combining medieval Poland with feudal Japan, but both of them in the 1200s were attacked by Mongol invading forces. At different times, to be sure, but this gives you an idea of the sheer scale of the Mongol Empire. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great 
great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So let's start off with Temujin, Genghis Khan. That's coming later. He is part of a group known as the Eurasian Steppe Nomads. And what you have to understand for a bit of basic geography here is there is this incredible ocean of grass that starts in far East Asia, goes across the whole of the Asian continent, and then down on into Central Europe. It stops in the area that we would now call Hungary, the modern country of Hungary in Europe. And this Eurasian steppe, what makes it a steppe? Slow, low, undulating hills. It's not flat, and there are things like the Ural Mountains there, but the Ural Mountains stab like a dagger into the steppe. It doesn't cut off the steppe completely, and it's just covered in lush grass. Now, that's actually not particularly rich agricultural farmland, at least not in the 1200s, but it's an area where these nomads had a way of life for more than a thousand years. And it was a tough life. Everybody lived, I'm going to use the Mongol terms here, people lived in circular felt tents called yurts. And a yurt could be broken down within hours, put onto various pack animals, and then you could start moving your entire tribe or family unit across the steppe. The horses were smaller than you might think and actually covered in more hair than your average European horse, the sort of thing that you would see in something like a horse race. They're smaller and shaggier than that, but perfect for the incredibly cold winters on the Eurasian steppe. In essence, the steppe acted as a giant supermarket for the horses. And a lot of the cultures on this steppe, it wasn't just the Mongols, they just happened to be the most successful group of all, they would actually measure your value in horses. So horses were traded. Horses were basically currency. If you are one of these nomads, your whole life has to be carried with you. There isn't time to have a sedentary population. Basic stoves were carried along, but it meant things like kilns couldn't possibly be mobile. That meant that they traded. They might be going down into the Middle East and trading with the great Islamic societies there or into China. So what we have is a group that whenever they needed something technical, they would trade or raid these people. And also it is worth remembering that this is the time in the 1200s when the Silk Road had already been there for a thousand years or more. And so sometimes these groups would charge the traders to walk through and, and in essence, pay protection money. Or sometimes they just flat out attack them and took whatever goods they wanted. So they had access to things like silks and metalwork and pottery and so on and so forth, but they themselves weren't making any of this stuff. When it came to the food, Mongolian food is not great. Would you like fermented yak's milk, which is sort of a bit alcoholic? Not really. How about mare's milk, that's horse milk, mixed with blood? Bright pink, pretty nutritious, actually. 
it's not going to make it into Burger King anytime soon. Also, an awful lot of sweetmeats, i.e. testicles from various different animals. There wasn't any agriculture. They weren't farmers. What they did is they carried the livestock around with them. Not carry, but they would roam around. And because there was grass in every direction, it was easy to feed these things. They did have sheep as well, but it was yaks and horses mainly. And they were also hunters. They were exceptional falconers, sometimes using things like eagles as well. And indeed, the Mongols had this type of great hunt, where what they would do, coordinating amongst themselves, is the men would form a giant circle, signaling with each other and various hoots and whistles and waving of flags and things like that. You know, you could barely see the people on the other side of the horizon. And this circle would slowly shrink, get smaller and smaller, which meant that the wildlife that wasn't a paying in the attention when it was a big circle is beginning to be rounded up into a circular area, into a concentrated area, and then the hunting with their bows, their recurved composite bows. These things weren't quite as powerful as a longbow, but with a longbow, it took you a long time to learn on and get the power to train to be able to draw that bowstring and fire it. And also, you could only do it with your feet firmly standing on the ground. These things didn't quite have the range, didn't quite have the penetrating power, but you could fire them far more rapidly and you could do it on the back of a horse. So you were super mobile archer cavalry. And if you think that that wasn't effective, ask the Romans when they were being attacked by a very similar group called the Huns, you know, Attila the Hun. But that was 800 years earlier than the time we're talking about now. So you can see life on the steppe was tough. In amongst all of this, you can understand that you had to be a family unit. These sometimes very loosely coalitioned tribes were there to support each other, sometimes bully each other. But if you were on your own, that was almost a death sentence. And it seems that Temujin's family were one of these very small tribes. It sounds very grand saying he was the son of a tribal leader, but the tribe was almost nothing. And if you wanted to compare it to overall resources, your average merchant in Europe had simply more power and resources and a better standard of living than the leader of a small tribe on the Mongolian part of the steppe. And his parents seemed to, or his father critically seems to have died at a certain point, which meant that they were in essence leaderless. He was still a teenager. He tried leading the tribe. It all went disastrously wrong. The point where it really went badly wrong for young Temujin is he got married to this woman called Bota. And they got married and almost immediately they were attacked and his wife was kidnapped and carried away. And there was this moment when he could have chased after them and probably died, but it would have been the noble thing to try and get back his new blushing bride. But instead he decided that he would lick his wounds, almost literally, and come back and fight another day. When he did eventually come back with a larger group and did manage to get his wife back, she was pregnant. Now, I don't want to go too much into this because I'm on Temujin's side on this one. Temujin turned around and said, that's my child, definitely mine. She was not pregnant before I turned up. That's definitely mine. 
This is important for Chagatai Khan because he was son number two and had a real falling out with son number one because he considered him a bastard. And Chagatai wasn't wrong, but it wasn't what Temujin wanted and you did what Temujin said. Now, he was one of these people who didn't care about blood ties, family links. This was the key to the society of that time. Instead, what he was interested in was not blind loyalty, but loyalty and also ability. He ran a meritocracy. If you're good, you'll get promoted. Not, who's your daddy? Oh, in that case, you'll get to be the general and things like that. There was a famous occasion in one of the battles that he had. He captured somebody who had been a turncoat, but he let them go because he understood that they were loyal. Somebody else who decided to be sneaky at the same time, he did actually kill. So he was sensible about why people's loyalties changed rather than being completely inflexible. But what he managed to do over a decade, this was not something that happened overnight. He didn't win all his battles. He won some, he lost some, but he began to get a core of really capable captains underneath him who they all saw something in Temujin but in return they also delivered and so after a while he was simply winning more than he was losing and then eventually he unifies all of the Mongol tribes under one banner and at that point there is a great gathering where they declare that Temujin is now the universal ruler and it is the Mongols' divine right to conquer the world. And divine ruler or universal ruler, if you want to translate that into English, is Genghis Khan. So it is a title, not a name. And Khan, which is quite a popular surname in places like Pakistan, for example, it's quite often translated to king, but it's leader, ruler, sultan, whatever you want, whichever society you're from, the top dog. I guess in a democracy, if this had been translated first, it would have been president. <laughs> so that's the idea. It is the ultimate sign of respect. And then, now that he had these incredibly battle-hardened, extremely well-trained and motivated men underneath him, he went on a massive expansion pushing into northern China, spreading east into what was the largest Islamic empire at the time, something called the Khwarazmian Empire. This is something most people have never even heard of, and it's deliberately so. It only lasted for about a century. But what, what, what wiped it out? The answer is the Mongols. And in essence, you've all heard the phrase, don't shoot the messenger. And generally in history, when something bad is done to the messenger, the idea being this, the messenger might be giving you bad news, but they are purely just a representative. And you also might want to send a reply message, even if it's rude. On this occasion, the Khwarazmian Shah, the ruler, decided to kill the Mongol messengers. And so that slight could not be ignored by the great Khan. What happens next? We then get 
a lightning fast attack into the Khwarazmian Empire and it turned out that that Shah who'd been told by his courtiers that you are Alexander the Great reborn were a bunch of yes men and he wasn't even close to being Alexander the Great but also he was up against truly the most terrifying and disciplined and effective fighting force on planet earth in the 1200s. He didn't stand a chance and so what was fascinating about the Khwarazmian Empire is Genghis Khan just wanted to burn it to the ground. He wanted to teach this empire a lesson. And this is why now, today in history, we know almost nothing about this empire because all the records were destroyed. Any major sticky-outy monument-type things were torn to the ground. And I love this fact. The last Shah was chased across Central Asia by a death squad of Mongols whose only goal was to hunt him down. And they didn't quite get there. He died of some kind of natural causes or exhaustion or something like that, some more poetic people say, of a broken heart as he saw the end of his empire. And what was beautifully poetic and true is the fact that he was buried by his supporters in his cloak, the only thing he then owned. Everything else was gone. The whole empire was destroyed. Only a few days later, the Mongols catch up with them, and this is on the coast of the Caspian Sea, which is a long way from Mongolia and shows you how these men just smashed through the whole of Central Asia. You have one of his generals, Subutai, who does one of the greatest reconnaissance in force in all of history. He captured pretty much most of Russia. When people turn around and say Russia is uninvadable, it is, I guess, from the West, asked Napoleon and Hitler. But if you ask from the East, Tamerlane and Genghis Khan, they say, what? What's the problem? It is worth pointing out that the Mongols later, this is after the death of Genghis Khan, the Mongols knew that the Rus had a headquarters in Kiev, you know, Kiev in Ukraine, but that was just simply too far away and not very convenient. So they made them set up a new town, which was easier and closer to the Eurasian steppe, closer to their main focus point of power. And that town was called Moscow. And the Rush of Rus of the Moscovite area, these people paid tribute to the Mongols for more than a century after the foundation of the city. This is something that would not be taught in modern day Russia. So you've got the idea that they're expanding in every direction. They're completely ruthless, but they're also reasonable. We come to Chagatai Khan. He died in round about 1240, give or take, few, few years into the 1240s. But he was given a large chunk of Central Asia to rule. Now, he wasn't as exciting as his dad or as impressive as Subutai, but he went on multiple different campaigns in Central Asia and also on into China. He fought multiple campaigns, and yet he is a pretty much forgotten name from world history. But at the time, he was one of the most feared men in the world. Now, one of his brothers, Ogadai, became the next great Khan. But what we've got with Chagatai is he was an instrumental aristocrat, an effective ruler of part of this massive empire. What's interesting about the empire is it was so big and the technology was horses. People talk about the Mongol hordes rampaging across Asia. These horses weren't magic. In fact, they're smaller than your average European horse of today. 
So I've done the maths. In fact, there was a time when I was going to potentially do a documentary showing you how slow these horses were, but also showing you the sheer vastness of the Eurasian steppe. And I was going to theoretically ride a horse from Ankara, which is in the middle of Anatolia, middle of modern day Republic of Turkey, where a big battle happened between the Ottoman Empire and Tamerlane, who is a version of the Mongol Empire, but about a century later. So basically, I was going to ride a horse from there to Uzbekistan, and it was going to take three months. That's about as best you can do on a horse like that. So when we do talk about the Mongols getting as far as Kiev, it gives you an idea that this took so long. There was a massive battle in Poland. Said I'd get to this point. Battle of Lignitz. It's, it's called several different things. This is in the middle of the 1200s. And a combination of the Teutonic Knights, some of the cream of the, of the chivalry of Europe, along with local Polish militias and armies. At the same time, Hungary was also invaded. It was a pincer movement separated, the pincers separating by 500 miles. This is modern day type of mobilization and ambushing. You can see why the white scars picked the right civilization to be connected to. But at the Battle of Lignitz, the Europeans were completely wiped out. So why didn't the Mongols keep going? Because just after the battle, the Mongols found out that Ogadai Khan had died. And therefore, they all needed, as part of the culture set up by Genghis Khan, had to go all the way back to Mongolia to elect the new Mongol ruler. So, yeah, it was the sheer size of it that made it unwieldy. But this is a civilization that tried to invade Japan twice, that did successfully invade Korea all of China. The Yuan dynasty was the Mongolian dynasty of China, and you've got Kublai Khan, who is widely seen as the last great Khan of the Mongols, right at the end of the 1200s. But you've also got various Khanates with cool names like the Golden Horde and the White Horde, which is massive administrative areas in Central Asia that were part of this empire. Indeed, the horde that was in modern-day Iran never was conquered. They just interbred into the local population, converted to Islam, and today you can still see people who clearly have Mongol ancestry in somewhere like Tehran, which is kind of counterintuitive. So the Mongols have had this impact on the whole world, but it was so big, it invariably was going to break up. And of course, it was going to be attacked from various different sides at various different points as well. And it couldn't keep expanding all the time. So with that in mind, that's a potted history of the Mongol Empire linked with the White Scars, and hopefully you'll see that they're some of the most exciting bits of lore and history in all of Warhammer 40,000. Thanks very much for listening, and as always, another episode coming soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. 
And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.